Hello, everyone. Welcome again to this opportunity that we have to share some time together, just growing in our faith in God and uh, just continuing to become more and more like Jesus, who fills us with, with the abundant life that he came to give us. I want to welcome you again. I'm Pastor Tim, and uh, beginning this week, we are now known as Real Life. Uh, we, uh, if you weren't with us last week, last week we changed our name from the Lamb of God Fellowship to real life. And I'm um, wearing one of the shirts that we have available. If you're interested in getting one of these shirts, you can stop by our church. Uh, and our tagline here is live a better story. And we believe that uh, the message that we want to bring to people is that when you put Jesus at the center of your life, you know, he's going to make your story better by far. And that we're a part of God's story together. And real life, real life really kind of conjures up that idea that this isn't about a religion. Uh, this is relevant. God is real. He's relevant. We need to be real. We need to be authentic with one another, with God. And uh, Jesus came to give us, as he said in John 10, 10, I came that you might have life and have it abundantly. And that's our message to the world is that Jesus gives life, real life to those who seek him, who, to those who return to him. And uh, as a church, um, you know, we're not into gimmicks. We're not into just changing names for namesake, but we are into trying to communicate the gospel to this generation. And so I'm inviting you to join us on this journey at Real Life as we seek to live real life with God, have that real abundant life, but also to share that good news, that message with those around us. And uh, just as a quick reminder, back in January, I did a series on our core values. And we've been around for 40 years. And now as we pivot to this next generation and we, we've changed our name, just kind of not really changing our vision, but increasing our desire to reach even more people with this good news. We have five core values that we are continuing to carry on with us. I just want to review those very quickly with you. Number one is love. And the tag phrase that we use around here for that is see a need and meet it, find a hurt and heal it. We believe in love, right? Love that makes a difference. Number two, charismatic. We are a spirit-filled, spirit-directed church. We want to live spirit-filled and spirit-directed lives. We believe that God is with us. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit and that he leads, guides, teaches us every day as we fellowship with him through his Holy Spirit. Thirdly, we believe in freedom, the fullness and fruitfulness of Christ in our lives. We want to divest ourselves from the wrong thinking, from hurts, from pains, from hangups, from the past. We want to be who God says that we are. So we are passionate about pursuing freedom for ourselves and helping others find that freedom in Christ. And when we find that freedom, we find fruitfulness in him. Fourthly, one of our core values is the word of God, scripture. And our desire is to learn it and live it. It's not enough just to know it, but Christ calls us to live it, to put it into practice. As he reminds us, the wise man is the one who hears these words and puts them into practice. So we want to learn so that we can live even better. Learn it and live it. And finally, we believe in excellence because excellence uh, to us is uh, an inspiration to people and it's a way to honor God. And so our tag phrase for this is that everything we do is worship. That's why it should be done with excellence because the very breath that we breathe, you know, is a gift from God. He belongs, you know, uh, we belong to God and all that we have is his. And so all that we do is worship. So it should be done with great excellence. So those are our core values. And then last week I shared with you kind of four different Questions And today I just want to bring that a little bit to the forefront. Our process here at Real Life to experience this real life is really learning the answers to four basic questions. First of all, how do I know God? Because God wants us to know him, not know about him, actually know him in a personal relationship. And we're going to talk about that today. The second question we're going to look at in a couple of weeks is how do I find freedom? How do I find uh, freedom from the things of the past, healing from hurts in my life? How do I do that? And uh, that's part of the process that we believe helps us experience the abundant life Christ came to give us, that real life. Thirdly, the question that everybody asks at some point in their, time, in, in their life is, what is my purpose? And we want to help every person discover their purpose, their God-given purpose. Because when we do what God's called us to do, there is nothing greater uh, no greater satisfaction, no greater fulfillment we'll ever find than to fulfill our purpose in him. 
And then finally, the fourth question we'll look at in a few weeks down the road is how do I make a difference? My life can actually make a difference? Oh yeah, you bet you it can because God put you here on earth for a purpose and he has a destiny. He has something for you to do that will change eternity. He has lives for you to touch and impact and that's what makes life exciting and, uh, and so adventurous for us as Christians is that our lives actually matter and they can make a difference with Christ in us flowing through us. So today I want to talk about how do I know God? Today and next week, we're going to talk about this question. How do I know God? We need to know God. We all crave for God. The Bible says that our souls are thirsty for God. We hunger and we thirst for God. We don't always know it's God that we're hungering and thirsting for, but we come to find that when we taste God, yep, that's what it was. That's what I was hungering for. That's what I was looking for. So, but how do we know God? Not just know about God. I don't want to just know about God. I don't want to hear someone else's story about God. I mean, I want to know him myself. I want to hear him talking to me. I want to hear him leading me. I want to know his heart. I want to feel his love. I want to have an intimate relationship with God. And that is the design that God has for you too, for each and every one of us to actually have a real knowledge, a real relationship with him. So today I want to start that discussion with you a little bit, right? And to do that, I think there's a lot of things that help us to know God. I'm just going to list some things for you. You know, like church, going to church helps us to know God better. Prayer definitely helps us to know God better. Worship, when we worship him, uh, our hearts are open to him. We begin to know him better. We begin to sense his presence better. The Holy Spirit, of course, living in us, teaching us, guiding us all the time. The Bible, right? Reading the Word of God helps us to, to know God. It teaches us who God is. And Christian friends around us. And that's why we value having life groups and doing relationships together, having life together, because we help each other get to know God. And we experience God through one another oftentimes. But before we get into all those things, and by the way, those sound like a bunch of religious things, right? But... They all are not in ends of themselves that they were just be religion, but they are actually a means to an end. And the end is to know and experience God himself. In fact, the love of God, the presence of God. So these aren't just religious activities. They actually have a purpose to help us connect with God. And the most important thing to know about God and to experience from God I want to talk about today, and it is simply this, love. You need, I need, first and foremost, before we get into anything else, we need to know the love of God for us. And when I say no, I mean we need to feel it, experience it, and, and have that as our foundation in our faith. Because when love is the foundation, God's love is the foundation of our faith, everything else takes care of itself. Remember when Jesus said, excuse me, the greatest commandments are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And he said, and the second is like it, is to love your neighbor as you love yourself. And then he said, all of the commands hang on or hinge on those two. And if you are following the love of God and you're loving one another, you're, gonna, you're going to naturally fall into alignment with all the other commands of God because all of the commands of God are not just rules. They are love-motivated principles for you to experience the fullness that God has for you. You see, it's all about love, a motive of love, an experience of love, an outburst or an overflow of love. That's the foundation of our faith. And so today I want to share a Bible story with you. I'm really excited to preach this message because I have never preached on this story in my life. And it's one of the most famous stories in the Bible. Can you believe that? <laughs> I've been preaching for like 20 some years now and I've never preached on this story. And it's a story most children know about. And even if you haven't read the Bible, you've probably heard about this story because it's one of the most popular children's stories that we share in Sunday schools all across this world. And it is the story of Jonah. Now, I probably, you probably don't even know it as the story of Jonah. You probably know it as Jonah and the, there you go, the whale. That's why we got this great water and ocean, you know, the waves flowing behind me. Because we're talking about Jonah and the whale. And I'm actually going to read through the story with you. So if you have a Bible, 
you want to read it with it, uh, read it with me, I, I should say. Get your Bible out, open it up to Jonah, see if you can find it. It's a very small book in the Old Testament, and it's only got four chapters. And we're going to read through this story together, and we're going to learn, hopefully by the end of this, how much God loves us, no matter how far we've fallen, no matter how far we have strayed from God, no matter what we've done, no matter how disqualified we may have made ourselves, that God's love is always going to pursue you and pursue me. God loves you. And not only that, I hope that we learn this, that God wants us to love one another that way just as much as he loves us. All right, so let's get into this Bible story. We're going to start with Jonah chapter 1. I'm going to begin to read it, okay? The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. And so to give you a little history here of what God is calling Jonah to do, Nineveh was to be the capital city of an evil empire called Assyria, the Assyrian Empire. History records that the Assyrian people were brutal and uh, vicious warriors who were merciless in the way that they did warfare. And soon, uh, during Jonah's day, he was a contemporary of a couple other, other prophets. One was Amos, uh, and one was um, Hosea. And so they are, during this time of history, they knew about the Assyrian Empire. The Assyrian Empire was on its movement up in power and strength. And they were the number one enemy or threat to the Israelite nation. In fact, at this time, it was a roughly 750 to 775 BC when the events of Jonah and the whale took place. Now, Jonah is a prophet of the Lord. God gave him this crazy, ironic, difficult assignment to go to Nineveh, the chief enemy of the northern kingdom, and preach to them so that they might repent. And Jonah had no interest in this whatsoever. Okay, the northern kingdom was going to be, in the near future, taken over by the, this group of people. And in fact, history records in the year 722 BC, the Assyrian army defeated the northern kingdom of Israel. This story is taking place, I don't know, roughly 50 years before that happened. And the Lord had already prophesied through Hosea and through Amos that because of Israel's own sin, they were going to be exiled into Assyria beyond Damascus. And so Jonah knew this, this is the people group that God, you said you're going to bring to defeat us, kill our people, steal everything that we have and take us captive. And you want me to go and preach a message to them? so that you might have mercy on them? No, no, no way. Do you see the context of this? This is, this is impossible in Jonah's mind that he would even consider doing this. He just couldn't see himself doing that. And not only that, but during this time, the understanding of God being God over all was, was really wasn't that clear to the Israelites. They thought, this is our God. And, and there's a jealousy with that. Like, this is our God. And so I could see Jonah thinking, God, you're our God. You're the God of Israel. You're the one who takes care of us. You're the one who shows us mercy. I don't want to share you with someone else. Don't give them mercy. You're on our side, right? It wasn't until later that we begin to see this understanding coming that Israel was to see themselves as blessed to be a blessing. But they didn't really see it that way yet. So these Ninevites were Gentiles to them. They were foreigners. They were the enemy. And yet God was going to teach Jonah that he loves every single person on the planet, that every single one of us are his chosen, his created children, his sons and daughters, right? God just chose Israel to be a beacon of light and a avenue through which he would bless and love so that they would bless and love. And today, that's who we are as well, the church. We are the avenue through which the love and grace of God has come to flow through us to reach the lost with that same love, that same mercy, that same compassion. So this is, 
This was a big lesson that God was ready to teach Jonah and the Israelites. Okay? So I know I said a lot there and only got through two verses, but I'll read a lot more here as we get going. So let's pick up in verse 3. But Jonah, what was Jonah's response to this uh, assignment from God? <laughs> Check it out. Jonah ran. He ran from God. It says he ran away from the Lord and he headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, <clears throat> excuse me, after paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. He is hightailing it away from God. He wants nothing to do with this assignment, right? In fact, Nineveh and Tarshish, if you look on an ancient map, these were the extreme known locations of the earth at that time. And uh, Nineveh was off to the east from where Israel was, north and east, right? Just north and east of Damascus. Tarshish was way over by Spain. And so instead of just kind of not going anywhere, uh, Jonah actually gets in a boat and he's going to go to the opposite end of the world, all the way to the west. He is getting as far away from God and as far away from this assignment as he can possibly do. That's the story. That's what's going on. And it says here in verse four, then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid and each cried out to his own God and they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone down below the deck where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. The captain went to him and said, how can you be asleep? Get up! <laughs> And call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us and will not perish. Because everybody was crying out to their God. So he's like, Jonah, don't you have a God? Cry out to him. We got to get some help here. I mean, this was, this was, uh, you know, uh, the, this was emergency. They, they thought they were going to crash and their lives were going to be over. Verse seven. Then the sailors said to each other, hey, guys, let's get together and cast lots to find out who's responsible for this calamity. So they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. So they asked him, tell us who is responsible for making all this trouble for us? What do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? They're grilling them like, why? What did you do? What's going on? What, who do you know? What God do you serve? Why is this happening? Why is this your fault? They're trying to get to the bottom of it. And Jonah answered in verse nine, he said, I am a Hebrew and I worship the Lord. The God, listen, of heaven who made the sea and the land. And now everybody got really worried. Oh, you worship the God who made the sea? Uh-oh. This terrified them, it says in verse 10. And they asked, what have you done? They knew he was running from the Lord because he'd already told them so. The sea was getting rougher and rougher. So they asked him, what should we do to you to make the sea calm down for us? He told them in verse 12, pick me up and throw me into the sea. He replied, and it will become calm. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. In verse 13, instead, the men did their best to row back to the land, but they could not for the sea grew even wilder than before. Then they cried to the Lord, oh Lord, please do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man. For you, O Lord, have done as you pleased. Then they took Jonah and threw him overboard. And the raging sea grew calm. At this, the men greatly feared the Lord. And they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. Verse 17. But the Lord provided a great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was inside the fish three days and three nights. So that's mostly the story that most of us know. Of course, there's more to it. We're going to go through that. But I want to point out to you, when I study this in the Hebrew, there is a very clear theme that comes to light, and it is the word down. The word in Hebrew for down in the original scriptures is repeated over and over and over again. In the Hebrew, we see the word appear when Jonah went down to Joppa. He went down into the ship. He went down below the deck. When he got to the bottom of the ship, 
He laid down on the floor. He's getting as low as he possibly can. He's running from God and his life is going down, 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 down. Just when he thought he couldn't get any lower, right? He's hiding from God in the bottom of the ship, getting as far away from God as possible. God stirs up the sea and he, they throw him into the sea and he goes down even further. The Bible says, and he uses this word, shoal, shoal. And in Hebrew, that word means the underworld. He goes as far down as the Hebrew language can describe a person can go. He's at his lowest point and he's swallowed by a fish. Now he's down and he's swallowed and he goes down into the belly of this fish. So what is this teaching us? When we run from God, you know, when we, um, when we rebel against God, when we go our own way, you know, the Bible is painting a very clear picture that things don't go well for us. Down, 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 down. And what happens when he can go no further? What happens when Jonah reaches his absolute lowest possible point in the belly of a fish at the depths of the sea, the furthest, deepest, worst place he could possibly find himself? What happens? He's there for three days and three nights. Can you imagine what he's thinking in the belly of that fish? And finally, in chapter two, we see a turn. It says, from inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God. And Jonah, after three days and three nights, at his lowest point, looked up. For the first time in the Hebrew language, we see the word up. It's like he's looking up to God and he takes a prayer and, he, and the prayer goes up before God. And he looks up instead of constantly going down. He finally turns back to God and he looks up to him. Listen to this amazing prayer or this amazing account in chapter two. He is saying, Jonah is saying, in my distress, I called to the Lord and he answered me. From the depths, that word is shoal. From the underworld, from the depths of the grave, I called for help and you heard my cry. And you hurled me into the deep, into the very heart of the seas and the current swirled around me. Listen to this. He's recounting what happened to him when he's thrown off the ship. All your waves and breakers swept over me. I said, I have been banished from your sight. Yet I will look again. I will look up again toward your holy temple. Verse five, the engulfing waters threatened me. The deep surrounded me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. Can you see this? The roots of the mountains, I sank down. To the roots of the mountains, I sank down into the valleys and the ocean. The earth beneath barred me in forever, but you brought my life up from the pit, up from the pit, O Lord, my God. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord. And listen to this. And my prayer rose. My prayer went up to you, to your holy temple. Then he has this, I'm going I'm to pause right there for a minute. Now we did all the downs. But did you hear these prayers of, of Jonah? I looked up, I prayed, you rose me up and Jonah's life begins to turn. What was the turning point for him? I think the main point that I would like to, to make at this point, I'll call it main point number one, is even when you and I are at our lowest point, and we have run from God, we've run the farthest we can go, we have gone to the lowest possible point. We could be at our absolute ending point, the bottom of the pit. If we turn, if we turn to God, if we look up to God, if we look to God, his love will find us. No matter where we are, how deep we're in it, how far we are, how dark we are, if we just look to him, his love is there. God never stops pursuing us. He never gave up on Jonah. He was pursuing him the whole time. Even the three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, God was still there. And as soon as Jonah turned, as soon as he looked up, as soon as he came back to God, God met him right there. Does that remind you of any New Testament stories? The prodigal son, remember that? The father's love. As soon as he turned, the father ran to him, threw his arms around him, didn't give him a lecture, didn't make him pay him back. 
just loved him and restored him back into relationship with him. Listen, no matter what you've done, this is the main point of the first half of the story. God loves you. He is never going to give up on you. His love is relentless. No matter what shame you feel, what rejection you feel, what hurt you've experienced, what mistakes you've made, know this. God loves you right now, right where you're at, just as you are. All you need to do is turn to him and receive his love. That's all you need to do. And it took three days for Jonah to finally do that. But as soon as he did, God heard his cry and saved him out of the depths of despair. So beautiful, so amazing. God's love is relentless. It also reminds me of the woman caught in adultery in the New Testament. I mean, can you be at any worst point in your life? I'm confident that was this lady's worst day on planet Earth. She got caught in adultery by people, physically dragged straight from the scene to Jesus, public. Everybody's accusing her. Everyone's got stones, ready to stone her. She's embarrassed beyond belief. She feels horrible. She feels shameful. She's standing in front of this great rabbi. And now she's having a public trial in front of everyone. I mean, that's, that's a pretty low point in her life. And what did Jesus do? What was God's response? Right? I believe in her heart she was sorry. She was hungry for a real love. She was hungry for God's love, but looked for it in men, right? Or in multiple men. Who knows? But obviously there's a reason why she was committing adultery. She didn't feel love. She was looking for love. And right in front of her was love personified, Jesus. And what did he do? He removed her accusers. He gave her mercy and her heart was filled with love. I believe that turned out from the worst day of her life to the greatest day of her life because she crashed into the love of God and it changed her forever. Jesus released her of her sin. He forgave her and and I believe that she came to new life that day. That's the kind of love that God wants you and I to have. No matter what we've done, he is for us. He loves us. He wants to restore us into relationship with him. So what are the results of Jonah looking up to God? Well, you may not have pieced it all together, but Jonah looks up. His prayer goes up. The fish comes up from the depths of the water. And then it says the fish vomits up Jonah and Jonah lands on dry ground where he started on the story. This is what it says. I think I left off on verse seven or verse eight. He says, those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. But I, with the song of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed. I will make good. Salvation comes from the Lord. In verse 10, and the Lord commanded the fish and it vomited Jonah onto dry ground. God saved him. But in the midst of that, Jonah had this incredible revelation. He said, those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. Now let's think about what was Jonah talking about here? What idols was he clinging to? He was clinging to the idol of his personal opinion, his personal rights, his personal view of the assignment God had given him. Jonah didn't want anything to do with going and preaching a message to the Assyrians. He had pride. He had uh, a nationalistic, you know, mindset and he had anger and, and he didn't feel like the Assyrians deserved the mercy or grace of God. He had his opinions, his thoughts, his ways, and he was clinging to those idols and those idols were killing him. Those idols resulted in him running from God, doing life his own way. And he went down, 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 and he surrendered to God. He let go of the idols, right? He let go of his ways, his thoughts, his perspectives, and he turned to God and God lifted him up, 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 and up. And Jonah says, wow, my my, my brain is blown here. He's like, those who cling to worthless idols, these things do not give us life. And yet we can hold on to them and they can sink us. They can take us down. And if you hold on to those worthless idols, We missed the grace. Did you hear that? We missed the grace that could have been ours. We missed the love of God that could have filled us and gave us true life, real life. 
So what's the message to us today? This happened 2,700 years ago. Can you believe the Bible? It's still relevant today in the year 2021 in America that this story that happened halfway across the world almost 3,000 years ago, God is teaching us something today from this. What is it? That every area of our lives we need to trust God with. Any area in our life that we are holding on to our own thoughts, our own ways, our own opinions, it's grasping a worthless idol that is taking us down, that's robbing us of a fuller life and experience of God's love and grace. My challenge to you as we're halfway through this story is to release any and every opinion and right and thought and uh, anything that is your doing and release it and trust Jesus with every area of your life. I am telling you right now, that exchange will be a huge improvement in your life. You will begin to live a better story if you surrender your rights, your thoughts, your opinions, your ways. No matter what area of life it is, give it to God. If there's anything that you've been holding back, release it to him and you will see the grace of God come into that area and bring new life to you. What's been going down, down, down can go up, up, up in him. Can someone give a hallelujah? Man, this is awesome. God is for us. He loves us. We need his love. My prayer is that you'll experience this love, this relentless love. God will never stop loving you. And he'll use all the circumstances of your life to reveal his love and his ways for you. And so let's do that. Let's continue the story. In Jonah chapter three, God's not done yet. This is actually take two. Jonah chapter three starts the same way Jonah chapter one started. Listen to this. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. (laughs) Remember, Jonah never went to Nineveh yet. And God's not done with Jonah yet. And God's not done teaching Jonah some things. And he's not done teaching us some things. He says this, go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Take two. (laughs) Jonah, are you going to do it this time? I'm, I'm not done. Go and do what I asked you to do the first time. So in verse three, Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. So he's doing it different this time. Now, Nineveh was a very important city. A visit required three days. It was a huge city. It took three days for a person to walk throughout the city. That's how big it was. On the first day, Jonah started into the city. He proclaimed, and this is in quotes, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overturned. That's all we know about the message that God told him to give. That's it. One sentence. 40 more days and Nineveh will be overturned. And I think he kind of preached it reluctantly. He said the message. But in verse 5, really, honestly, Jonah's worst fears came true. It says the Ninevites believed God. They actually believed the message. They actually responded to this message of repentance. And they declared a fast. And all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth, which was the way of them repenting and getting right and mourning their their mistakes and wickedness and sin. Verse six, when the news reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth and sat down in the dust. This is a sign of repentance. Then he issued an official, can you believe, believe this? An official proclamation in Nineveh. And here was the decree. By the decree of the king and his nobles, Do not let any man or beast, herd or flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink. He declared a citywide fast, animals and humans. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Verse 9, the decree said, who knows? God may yet relent. And with compassion, turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. And so the Ninevites actually repented. And Jonah was mad. He gets really mad. This is what he didn't want to see happen. Remember, these are his enemies. These are the people that God already said are going to come and kill you and destroy you and take away your land and and exile you beyond the land of Damascus into Assyria. Jonah didn't want to see this happen. And so I'm going to continue to read verse 10. When God saw what they did, 
how they turned from their evil ways. He had compassion and did not bring upon them the destruction he had threatened. And so God did what Jonah thought he was going to do. And he's just incredibly distressed. It says, but Jonah was greatly displeased and he became angry. So he's praying to God. He talks to God. It says he prayed to the Lord. Oh Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? That is why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, O oh Lord, take my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. Can you believe that? Jonah is throwing a pity party. He's so upset that God is going to show mercy and compassion to his enemies that he wants to die. He's like, this ain't fair. You know, I knew you'd do this. I knew you'd let them off the hook. I knew you'd forgive them. I knew you'd have compassion. And yet it seems that Jonah is forgetting something. I mean, do you think he's already forgetting about the, forgotten about the fish? About God's mercy to him? So God asked him a question in verse four. It says, but the Lord replied, have you any right to be angry? <laughs> maybe, maybe God's really just saying, Jonah, do you remember what I did for you with the fish? First of all, I commanded that fish to swallow you up to save your life. And I, and I, didn't, digest, I didn't let that fish digest you for three days until you finally came to your senses. And as soon as you turned to me, I rescued you from the depths of death, from the pit, from Shoal. And I brought you up and put your feet back on dry ground. I rescued you. I gave mercy to you, but you were rebelling against me. You were running from me. You were sinning against me. And yet I gave you mercy. God's trying to get him to see this, do you see? So it says this, Jonah is still upset. He's still mad. It says in verse five of chapter four, and we're almost done, by the way. Jonah went out and sat down at a place east of the city. It says there he made himself a shelter. He sat in its shade and waited to see what would happen to the city. So Jonah's mad. He's throwing a pity party. He pops a tent. He sits down. He says, I'm going to just have a front row seat. And I'm going to see if God's going to take these guys out or not. To be, excuse me, to be honest with you, Jonah really wants to see a fireworks show. I mean, he wants to see the hail and brimstone. He wants to see the judgment of God. These are his enemies. He is mad. He's angry. He wants God to get them because they've done all these bad things and they're going to do all these bad things. So this is what's in Jonah's heart. But is that what's in God's heart? And if what's in God's heart and what's in our heart are different, huh, whose heart do you think we should have? Do you think God should change and have our heart? Or do you think we should change and have God's heart? See, that's the, that's the second main point here. It's God's trying to get us not just to experience his mercy personally, but he's trying to get his heart into us that we would offer mercy to those around us because God's ultimate desire is that we witness of his love to this world that we don't just experience real life for ourselves, but that we offer that real life freely to those around us too that we have love we have compassion even for our enemies even though they don't deserve it you know maybe we should be reminded wait a minute I didn't deserve it I didn't deserve it either. Jonah, you didn't deserve it, but God poured his love out on you. Why? Because God is love. God is not a God of judgment. He's not a God who celebrates, you know, punishing or uh, killing or, you know, getting vengeance on people. That's not God. God is love. He wants to restore and rescue and save. And that message came out loud and clear through Jesus. And so the main point here, number two, let's say main point number two, is the lesson is not that God takes pity on the wicked, but listen to the difference. God takes pity on the one who repents and looks to him for salvation. Even if it's some really bad Ninevites. The Ninevites actually repented. They turned to God. They looked to God for mercy. So it's not that God just 
forgives everyone. God has made forgiveness possible to everyone, but it's not received until a person or a people turn to God, look up to God for salvation. And that's the same message Jesus brought to us. He said, for God so loved the world that whoever would believe in him, right, would not perish, but have everlasting life. So whoever does not believe in the son stands condemned already because he has not believed in the one whom he has sent. So Jesus, we're all condemned in our sin. We're all equal in our sin. We're all condemned. We all need mercy. We all need love. We all need forgiveness. But it's to the one who believes. It's the one who turns. It's the one who looks up and says, God, have mercy on me. And what happens? No matter what you've done, who you are, where you are, no matter what your history is, the one who turns to God, looks to God, says, I believe I need you. Help me. Have mercy on me, God. Save me. The love of God saves them, forgives them, and cleanses them. And that's the message that God was showing Jonah. Yeah, these are the worst of the worst. These are the worst people on the planet Earth. And yet, once they repent, I will forgive. Isn't that an awesome message? It's a powerful message. Jonah thought God was just for them, just for the Israelites, just for him, not for everybody else. But God's like, oh, no, no, no. I love all of my children and I want all of them to be saved and come to know me. Well, Jonah didn't quite get this yet. So we're going to finish our story by reading the last portion of chapter four. So J Jonah is shackled up. He's, he's looking for the show. He's got some popcorn. He's got his pop. He's wanting to see the movie, right? He wants to see this action film of uh, the Ninevites being blown off the planet. That's what he's wanting to see. But he knows God's going to have mercy, but he's just mad. So this is what the Bible says happened. In verse six of chapter four, then the Lord God provided a vine and may it, made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head, to ease his discomfort. And Jonah suddenly was very happy about the vine. He was very mad. And now a little plant grows over his head. And now he's very happy. He's like up and down like a yo-yo here. Verse seven, but at dawn the next day, God provided a worm, which chewed the vine so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he get, grew faint. And it says he wanted to die. Jonah wanted to die. And he said, it would be better for me to die than to live. So again, Jonah's down, he's up, he's down. He wants to die. He's super happy. He wants to die all because of a plant, right? And, and it says, God provided, God provided, God provided, God provided. God provided the fish for Jonah and saved him, right? God caused the fish to vomit him up, put him back on dry land. He comes over here. He's throwing a pity party. God provides a plant. It grows. He provides it to grow. He provides the, the sun. Then he provides, right? Kind of a twisted fate, a worm to eat the vine because God is still teaching Jonah. And it withers. And then he provides a super hot wind from the east that just really cooks Jonah to make him miserable. And in verse nine, it says, but God said to Jonah, do you have a right to be angry about the vine? And so Jonah answers back, I do. He said, I'm angry enough to die. So Jonah is so angry because this plant died and he's miserable that he wants to die. How, how self-centered he is in this moment, right? He's mad about a plant. And so God concludes the story. God provided a vine. He made the vine grow. The vine brought shade and relief to Jonah. Jonah was very happy because of that plant. God provided a worm. The vine withered. The sun rose, grew hot. God provided a scorching wind and Jonah wanted to die. That's what happened. And so God gives this final lesson to Jonah. And he says this in the last couple of verses. Jonah 10 and 11 of chapter four. But the Lord said, you have been concerned about this vine, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left and many cattle as well. Should I not be concerned about that great city? So what is God saying? 
said, Jonah, you're all upset about this plant, which you had nothing to do with. You didn't plant it, tend it, cause it to grow. And now it dies and you're upset. You're upset so much that you want to die because the plant died. And yet you're sitting here wanting to see me destroy, kill 120,000 people who don't know me. They don't know they're right from the left. In other words, God's not trying to be insulting here. He's just saying they are clueless. They don't know me. I haven't worked with them like I have worked with my people, Israel. And yet my goal, right? My long-term plan here is to raise up a people that I can bless, that can be this blessing to the world. You're mad about a plant that died, and yet you want to rejoice in seeing 120,000 people die in front of you along with all the animals. God even cares about the animals. He mentions them in the second, you know, same breath as he does 120,000 people. And then he tells Jonah, and God gets the last word because we don't see any more written in this book. God says, um, says this, should I not be concerned about that great city? And God is concerned and God loves each and every person. And I think that's the final lesson. And I, I think it's really summarized very well in the book of Ezekiel, the prophet Ezekiel, chapter 33, verse 11. God says through the prophet Ezekiel, as surely as I live, declares the Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their ways and live. Do you see? God says, I don't take pleasure in the death of the wicked. My, I take pleasure that they would turn, turn from their wickedness, turn to me and live. That's God's desire. That's God's will for every person on planet earth. No matter if they're our enemy, where they live, what language they speak, what color their skin is, what, it doesn't matter what they've done. God's desire and pleasure is saving people from their sin, from their wickedness. So he goes on to say this, turn, turn from your evil ways. Why will you die, people of Israel? Do you see God's heart? Do you have that heart? That's the heart I want to have for the people of this world. I mean, you know, there's people that make me mad. There's people I, you know, in politics that make me mad. There's other lands, other countries that are doing incredibly evil things that make me mad. It, it's hard for me to, uh, to think like God thinks. It's easier for me to think like Jonah thinks. Maybe you do too. But the truth of the matter is the same mercy and love that God has shown me and shown you. He wants to birth in us that same heart for others in this world. It is God's will and desire to save, not condemn, to give life, not death, to take life away. That's not God's desires to take life away, but to give life and give it abundantly. And so I got two challenges for you today as I close this message from this story. Remember the verse in Romans 5, 8, but God demonstrates his love toward us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were running from God, just like Jonah, while we were hiding and going down, 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 and getting as far as possible from God, while we were yet sinners, God showed his mercy to us. God shows his love to us. God will always have relentless love towards you and towards me. He will always pursue us to the ends of the earth. No matter where we go, God's love is, is like right there with us. All we have to do is look up. All we have to do is turn. And his love embraces us. So my first challenge to you is that. Turn over any area of your life that you've been running from God from. That you've been hiding from God. That you've been going away from God in. Turn that over. Release that idol. Release your opinion. Release your, your secure insecurity. Release your fear. Release that label. Let it go. And let the grace of God come and bring new life to you and new freedom to you. I know it's easier to say and ask you to do that than it is to do, but that's the challenge. And uh, maybe it's going to take you, you know, some extreme measures for the circumstances of your life until you finally get to that point. But just remember this, whenever you're ready, all you have to do is look up and call out to God. My second challenge is for all of us Christians, especially if you're part of the real life family here. Our challenge is to have this heart for one another, to have this heart for the world, 
to care about others, to want to make a difference, to want to reach the lost, to want to love even our enemies and to pursue this kind of heart that God has for all of us. May our church grow in this capacity to love the unlovable, to be bold and courageous with a message of hope, even when we don't feel like it, even when we don't like it, but let us have this heart for the lost and do whatever we can, right? To reach out with the love of God that they too might have life and have it abundant, that they might have real life. Let's pray together. God, we come to you and we just thank you for your great love and your great mercy toward us. That Lord, while we were yet sinners, you showed your mercy, your love to us by dying for us and giving us a new beginning, a new start. And I thank you for those who are watching, listening to this message today. And Lord, those who are ready to take up that first challenge to release an area of their lives that they've been hiding from you or running from you or being stubborn with. God, as we do that right now, we repent from our sin. We repent from running or hiding from you. We repent of doing this part of our life our way, holding on to that idol of our own opinions and our own thoughts. We repent, God, and we turn back to you. We look up to you and we release it into your hands. And we say, Lord, let your will be done. Uh, your way happen in this area of my life. I release it into you. Forgive me, Lord. I come to you. Save me. Save me. Let your grace enter this area of my life and bring new life and new order and new prosperity and new success in Jesus' name. Thank you, Lord. And Lord, for those who are watching today that just need to come back to you, maybe they feel like Jonah, maybe they feel like they're lost, maybe they feel like they've done something so bad that you'd never forgive them. Right now, Lord, I just think of that none of those thoughts are true, that God, your love reaches us at the farthest point of our, of our despair. And so, Lord, today, uh, we come back to you. If that's you, just pray this prayer with me. Say, Jesus, thank you for never giving up on me and loving me even when I wasn't doing things your way. Even in my rebellion, in my brokenness, in my darkest moments, my lowest points, your love is still there. And so today, I just return to you I surrender my life to you, Jesus, and I welcome your lordship. I welcome your saving power. I'm all yours. Save me, Lord, and teach me and lead me in a path of real life, of abundant life in you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. What an awesome, powerful story. You might want to read that again this week just to let it sink in even more for you. But also before we go, I want to bless you and remind you that uh, at church right now, at Real Life Church, we're having one service, okay? Last week for Easter, uh, we did two services, but we're back to just one service for the time being. It's at 10 o'clock. And if you're ever able to come and join us live, we'd love to have you. In the meantime, let me leave you with God's blessing, okay? And now may the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. And the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace in his name. Amen. Amen. Hey, have some real life this week. God bless you.